Our Father God, we want to thank you for the time that we can gather together as brothers and sisters and express our love for each other and our love for you and our thankfulness for who you are and that you have called us from darkness into light. It's an amazing thing. Lord, as we open the word of um, the scriptures, as we look back to Paul's letter to the Romans, we pray that you would give light to our hearts and to our spirits, that you would nourish us and feed us, that you would challenge us in our minds. And in the process of looking into these words and allowing them to have its effect in us, that we would come to see you as a big God and that we would glorify you, not just with words, but with our lives. Now speak to us, Father, if your sons and your daughters are eager to hear what your spirit has to say to the church today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There was a movie that came out in 1992. I really liked it. It was A Leap of Faith with Steve Martin. So Steve Martin plays this a charlatan uh, preacher. He's just trying to manipulate people uh, for, for their money. He has uh, his assistant, Jane, and some of his, uh, his clacks, his helpers, uh, interview the audience as they're coming in and get this secret information about them, which then they relay to him through an earpiece. And so he's pretending like he has all this inside information. He doesn't know anything about him, but he's just using the technology to manipulate their emotions so that they can get more money out of them. At any rate, he's, their group is traveling, and they end up in Rustwater, Kansas. And which is actually a real place, only it's not called Rustwater, it's called Plainsville, Kansas. But they're in Rustwater, Kansas, broke down, and so they decide, hey, we might as well just put on a show and milk this town for all we can get out of it. But they run into this local sheriff. The local sheriff's name is uh, Sheriff Braverman. Sheriff Braverman from Rustwater, Kansas, he realizes that uh, Jonas, the, the preacher, is, is really a charlatan, and so he's trying to expose him as, as a fraud. In the process of the movie, though, while Jonas is putting on all these fake healings and fake miracles, a, a true miracle takes place, and it really puts the, the true miracle against all these fake ones in juxtaposition to themselves. A lot of Christians were offended by the movie because they're offended at... Uh, a preacher being shown as a, a con man. The whole idea of that, that preachers are con men is offensive. But you know what? In reality, that happens all the time. There are thousands of these con men preachers. But it made me think, you know, what is the meaning of a leap of faith? And, and um, in its simplest terms, how do we apply that to what Abraham is experiencing in the text before us today? Well, we use the term leap of faith, and we're uh, meaning by that that somebody takes an action having no idea what's going to happen, but they're hoping for the best. That's how we use that. But uh, we usually use it in a derogatory term because we like to be more methodical about our decision-making. We like to know where we're going to land before we jump. So when we use the term leap of faith, we're implying that that's probably not a good thing. The term leap of faith originated in the mid-1800s, but it didn't become popular until the mid-1900s. And then it's been incorporated, incorporated into everyday use. It comes from the Latin word saltus fidelis, or fidel, saltus fidel, to leap of faith. It was originally coined by the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard, and he was trying to say that God cannot be ascertained or proved 
from science or from natural observation. And so a person needs to take this leap of faith. Um, they need to come through faith um, to God. And so he meant it um, rather honestly that you have, to, you, you have to take this step of faith to believe in God. But in spite of that, now it's been just used in everyday term to mean that somebody takes a big risk and they just hope for the best. Like I said, the passage before us today is often cited as an example in Scripture where somebody takes a huge leap of faith. Abraham, for no reason whatsoever, or we might say in spite of reason and evidence, puts this um, faith in God. He takes a leap of faith. But before us, we need to ask, does he really take a leap of faith? Is he really acting without reason? Is he really trusting without um, a, a purpose for his trust. And what is faith anyway, and why does it seem so important to God? How does faith work? So those are the questions before us today. Let's take our Bibles and turn where we left off last week from Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. The human problem, according to Paul, um, is not the problem of crime or war or shortages or epidemics or it's not economic recession it's not depression it is not the social or personal problems that we suffer however great those can really be the fundamental human problem is not even ultimately the reality of death itself the fundamental human problem is that we are sinners we are unrighteous and in god's sight we are exposed then to his holy judgment and condemnation. And that's true of every single person without exception, that uh, we are sinners and we deserve God's condemnation and we have no way of balancing the scales, no way of making ourselves right by him. And then we come to uh, Romans chapter 321 where we are told in, in order to solve this predicament, this really annoys me, there's a bump on the carpet here. In order to solve this predicament, since we can't do anything to make ourselves righteous, God has to act to make us righteous himself. That's a conundrum both for us and for God. Again, in order for us to be righteous, um, there has to be actual righteous. Otherwise, it's a, it's a work of, of fiction. It's legal fiction to say someone's righteous when they're not. If God is just... If he is a just judge, he cannot wink at sin. He can't declare someone to be righteous until they actually are righteous. This becomes, of course, the crux of the whole Reformation. At what point do we receive righteousness enough so that we can merit coming into God's holy presence? That's the problem. And God himself has to solve this dilemma by declaring us righteous on the merits of someone else, an alien righteousness. God has to punish sin, and he has to do so fully so that he is satisfied that the sin has been dealt with. That's what we mean when we talk about God being propitiated. His wrath is satisfied because justice has been met. And the only way for us to, to be just is for God to reckon our sins to someone else and reckon his righteousness to ourselves. And that's what happens. Christ dying on the cross, shedding his blood, him being an innocent victim, 
God is satisfied that our sins have been paid. He's able to separate the sin from the sinner. And he transfers our sin to Christ and his righteousness to us. This, by the way, is what the communion table in front of you is all about. That our guilt has been transferred to the innocent victim of Christ and his righteousness has been transferred to us. This is, this is so profound and it is so necessary because of the absolute viciousness of all of our sins. And our only hope before God is that we have this substitute for us. And that brings us to our text today, Romans 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 13. Follow along with me. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For, it is, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let's uh, back way up to some of our earlier discussions about, about idolatry. In the Gentile world, in the, 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 it was just axiomatic that if you wanted to get a God, your God, to do something for you, then you needed to do something for Him. That's the whole business about idol worship. You bring your offering to the God, and you're trying to placate His anger towards you, or you're trying to manipulate his favor so that he'll do something that you want. And so you make your offering based on how badly you want it or how badly you feel. You make your offering and then you go away from bringing this sacrifice hoping that the God, the idol, will do what you ask it to do. That's the fundamental principle behind all idolatry. And of course, that was the fundamental principle in the ancient Near East of uh, of the Greco-Roman culture. Curiously, although it stands rather startling to us, it's not all that different in the Judaism of Paul's day and in modern Judaism. The Jews, of course, had a different message than that in their Bibles. And if you were to read from the different rabbis, you would, you would find the same message, the message of, of hope, the message of God's mighty love, the, message of his redemption of his people from bondage to slavery, the, the message of forgiveness through sacrificial death. You would see those messages, but they lived by an entirely different paradigm, a completely different model. Um, you might read in the rabbis of the days, you might read of God's love and mercy, but that's not how the Jew lived. The Jew lived by a strict code of adherence to the law. You followed the law. You did what it said to do. You avoided what it said not to do. And in your keeping of the law, your obedience to the law, that would make you right before God so that God would declare you righteous. So you are righteous because you are righteous, because there's enough significant merit that you have done that God would declare you righteous. Now, Paul, always referring to Scripture, always being biblical, takes us back to the fact of Christ's life and his death, his resurrection, and he tells them, these Jewish people, that to live the way God desires, to live in such a way that it makes you righteous, you need an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not your own, a righteousness which comes through Christ. And now, he trots out for us the greatest man in all of Scripture, 
save Jesus himself, the greatest man in all Scripture, Abraham, and he's our, our model, he's our, our defense for righteousness which comes through faith and not by works. He's the, the, the forerunner. Now, every Jew wanted to be like Abraham. Every Jew wanted to have the righteousness of Abraham and the faith of Abraham. And so Paul is using Abraham to show us that justification cannot be through the law. It cannot be through our own works because even Abraham lived by a different principle than that. Abraham lived hundreds of years before the law was even given. And yet God declares him to be righteous by a different force, by the force of faith and not by the force of living a righteous life. And remember that um, Abraham is Paul's example here of righteousness by faith. Now, you would think, well, he's, he's comparing apples to oranges. Abraham believed God, and what Abraham was believing God for was a son, was for progeny, was for, for land. So it must be that the, Paul is giving Abraham as a model of similarity, that just as Abraham had faith to believe in a son, so we should have a different kind of faith for a different kind of subject, and that subject for us is the forgiveness of, of our sins. And so there's a similarity. That's not what he's saying. It's not a similar faith. It's the same faith. This is a startling reality. The promise that was made to Abraham is that through his son, there would be not only a, a great vast multitude of people, but through his son would come a redeemer. And Abraham looks through the corridor of time and he realizes through his progeny, God himself would send a savior. And how do I know that? Well, in John uh, 8, 56, Jesus said, Abraham um, rejoiced to see my day and he, he sees it from afar and was glad. And then again in Hebrews uh, chapter, no, no, in Galatians chapter 3, um, we're told that this gospel was preached to Abraham, this message of salvation, this good news of God's gracious redemption through a Savior. So whatever, without going too far off track here, I realize I'm already on a rabbit trail, but whatever Abraham knew was a lot more than what we would normally credit him for knowing. He knows that through him would come a redeemer. He sees ahead this good news, the gospel message that a redeemer would come through. And Abraham believed God for that promise. So we're not talking about a similar kind of faith because we're asked to have the same kind of faith in exactly the same promise, a redeemer which we have to embrace by faith. So Paul is cutting across this re religious attitude of, of all human minds, and that being that there's something that you can do to determine your eternal destiny, that salvation is ultimately in your hands, that you are the captain of your own souls, that you can choose for yourself what, you, what you're going to do and how you're going to believe and what you're going to believe in, and through your good choice, you can save yourself. The problem is actually even more widespread than you'd imagine because every one of us sitting in this room believes that. Yeah, we've come to believe in salvation through Jesus Christ through faith. But if you think about it in practice, you still believe 
that your righteousness, your choice, is somehow going to save you. And that comes from a deep sense of pride that we have. We don't like to hear the fact that there's nothing you can do to save yourself, that you are a sinner, completely unable to choose God, dead in your sin. We like to say, oh yeah, but there's a little bit of good, and God just perfected that in me. Or God offers me 99% of it, but I have to finish it out. I have to finish the work of redemption myself. We like to think, because we're such proud creatures, that we are responsible for some, if not most, of our own salvation. And if you doubt that, notice the way that you pray. And prayer is very difficult for us because of our proud heart, because our hope is in ourselves. And so when we pray, we don't have the eager expectation, the hope that God will hear us and answer our prayers. We, it's easy for us to say that we believe in salvation is by Christ alone, but in practice, our pride keeps that from us. So similarly, the, the notion that, that we are as desperately bad as Paul seems to be describing to us is really offensive because we like to think some people are that bad. Terry Johnson is that bad. <laughs> but we're not all that bad. And so we like to, we like to think that and because it's offensive to us, to, for, the, for Paul and for the Scripture to declare that we are total derelicts, and we find that offensive, because it, it's, it stings our pride. And the consequence of trying to achieve some religious status through the right works that you yourself can perform the consequence of trying to receive rightness before God through works results only in God's wrath and not in salvation. And the reason for that is that the law can do nothing to help us to be better. It can only condemn us. And if you look to the law and it says do this or, or don't do that, and if you do this and you don't do that, there's going to be all these nasty consequences that are going to happen. If, the problem is that the law possesses no power to change us. And so Paul would ask, as we sometimes ask, well, if that's the case, then isn't the law a bad thing? If the law just condemns us and convicts us, what's the point? Isn't the law bad? And we're going to get to that in Romans chapter 7 when, when Paul says, is, is the law bad? Certainly not. And the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. You, every morning I get up and I look in the mirror and I look scruffy. My hair's uncombed and I got stubble growing on my face. And I'm just waiting for the mirror to give me a nice, clean, close shave. And it never does. You might look in the mirror and it might show you that you have a dirty face. But it does not nothing to clean your face for you. It does nothing to comb your hair and scrape the whiskers off your face. If you want to get the whiskers off your face, you have to do what my wife does. No, I mean. <laughs> you got I have to. I have to get my razor out, and I have to get the hot water going, and I have to get the, the shaving cream on my face. I have to do that myself. You don't say the mirror is defective because it doesn't wash your face for you. That's not the purpose of the mirror. 
You know, the purpose of the mirror is to show you that your face needs to be washed or you need to be shaved. It doesn't shave you. So you don't say the mirror is defective because it doesn't wash my face or shave my face. You, in a similar way, the law wasn't given to you to make you holy. The law was given to you for a very different purpose. Well, first of all, it's to show us what God is like, God's holy nature, God's justice, God's righteous demands. That, that's the first purpose of the law. But beyond that, it's to show you that you cannot, you are unable to live up to these righteous demands. And so consequently, because you can't make yourself righteous by doing as God requires, it leads us to find that alien righteousness, the righteousness in someone else. It leads us to turn to Jesus Christ. And so Paul would later say um, that you would not know that you were sinners except through the law. The law's not given so that you can be righteous. The law's given so that you can see that you can never be righteous, that you need to trust in Christ alone. So verse 15, Paul asks, uh, um, he, he asks, well, uh, where then is, where there is no law, there is no transgression. And we, we would wonder, well, what does that mean? Well, it could mean that if you didn't have a law, you wouldn't be transgressing the law. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? If, you, if there's no law against doing something, you're not transgressing the law by doing it. But in the context, and context is important, in the context, what he's clearly saying is, you would not have known that you're offensive to God if the law had not revealed that to you. So that's that mirror image again. The law is showing you, not, it's not creating the, the, the reality. So then there's, there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem has to ultimately be in ourselves because the law's sole function is to bring that truth to our attention. Verse 16. This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all, as it's written I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom I believe, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. I want to pause here to talk a little bit about the nature of faith. And because that will help us to understand the concept of this leap of faith that we're talking about. When we talk about faith, and specifically I mean faith that justifies, it is not ignorant faith. It's not empty. It's not blind faith. A saving faith has to have three things. The, the reformer said it has to have the notitia, the essentious, and the fiducia. The notitia or the the indicia is the information, the content of what you're being told. The second part is the essentious. That is that you mentally assent to its truthfulness. So this is what you need to know. Yes, I agree with that. But that's still not saving faith yet because we have to move from this intellectual knowledge and this intellectual assent to having saving faith. And that is called the fiducia, the, that, that personal trust so we're, we are, we're justified by faith, trusting in Christ alone for salvation. 
Again, that's exactly what Abraham believed as well. He didn't just believe in God, because anybody can believe in God. Well, Satan believes in God. The demons believe in God. James says, you believe in God? Whoa, that's great. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. So believing in God is not saving faith. But somehow we have to move from believing in God to some kind of faith which God actually credits to us as righteousness, and that is this, that we believe God. Not that we're believing in God, we believe God. Now, some people think that this kind of belief in God or believing God is, is akin to closing your eyes and jumping off a bridge into the darkness, and you're hoping that Christ will catch you. And they say, well, that's what blind faith is all about. Do you just jump into the darkness and pray that Christ will catch you? Jesus never calls people to take a jump into the darkness. He's asking you to jump out of the darkness and into the light. That means he doesn't ask you to believe based on your ignorance. He asks you to believe on real issues, real things. He never asks us to crucify our intellect in order to become Christians. Faith is not believing just something that's absurd and foolish, something that you hope it would be true against all of the evidence against that. It's ultimately trusting what is preeminently trustworthy. And there's a tension here that comes in, into our life, and that's what Paul is writing here about uh, Abraham. He believed God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope or in hope against hope, he believed. And that would seem to give some credence to the fact that there's content, substance, to what Abraham believed. He's not just believing against all evidence and reason. He has a purpose, a reason. He has evidence to believe in. He believes hope against hope. It's not a leap of faith. He believes in God who makes the promise. He believes God is truthful and trustworthy. The object of his faith is God. The decisive issue in faith is not the amount of faith or the content of your faith. It is the object of your faith. And Abraham believes God is trustworthy. Now, Abraham, we're told here, grasps, grasps two massive concepts about God in this text here. He, he, he understands, we are told, that God gives life to the dead. Now, this is really, I said, I already said it was massive. This is really big. <laughs> now, before there's any discussion about resurrection, before there's any revelation about resurrection, um, Abraham believes that God can resurrect the dead. Uh, Genesis chapter 22. Uh, God has given Abraham the son of the promise, which is Isaac, his one and only offspring through whom all of the progeny of Israel will come. And then God says, take your son, your only son, the son of the covenant and promise, and sacrifice him to me. Uh, I don't remember, know what verse we're in, but we're in Genesis chapter 22. Sorry, I can't see what verse it is. And then Abraham does that. Think about how massive this is that God is asking of him. Abraham, by the way, 
is probably 120 years old by this time. He's, he's about 100 years old when Isaac was born. Isaac is a, he's not a, he's not a child. He's, he's a young man at this point. He's got no other hope that God is going to fulfill his promise except through Isaac. And God says, offer him, um, offer him to me. And now remember, there's, there's no background of resurrection. He's got no reason to hope in a resurrection. But if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise uh, raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is massive that he believed God had promised through Isaac will all these promises come. Now God's asking him to kill Isaac. He reasons God has to keep his word. All other things aside, God has to do what he says he's going to do. That's the one thing that I'm sure of. And so he reasons that God has sufficient power to resurrect Isaac since the promise has to come through him. Now, the second thing he saw, which was massive about God, is that God calls into existence the things that do not exist. God creates out of nothing, ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing. And this is a towering concept. Of course, it, the, the immediate reference has to do with the fact that Abraham's 100 years old and his wife is 90 years old, and so it's, it's physically impossible for them to procreate. And so in a theoretical sense here, um, God is creating uh, Isaac out of nothing, ex nihilo. Abraham's perception of God as the object of his faith is immense. This gigantic concept here um, that, that, that dominated all that he thought about God, and it can make all the difference in us too. The, the, the issue at hand is that only God has the power to create something from nothing. God being the creator does not share that ability. It's a non-communicable attribute of God. He shares that attribute with no creature. No creature can raise something from the dead or give something life. No creature can create something where, from nothing. So Satan could have stood at the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth until he was hoarse and Lazarus, Lazarus would not have stirred because Satan does not have the power to give life to the dead. Satan could have said, let there be light in the darkness and nothing would happen. There's no reason that there should be something where there was nothing because no creature has those powers. And I've heard this very dangerous heresy. I'm sure you've heard it too. And it's rooted in this verse uh, taken out of context. The, the, the heresy is that God used words to create reality. He calls uh, into existence things that did not exist by the use of the spoken word. And then the heresy says, and so can you. 
that you as a Christian have the authority to speak words and create a reality which did not previously exist. And they say that man has this metaphysical force to create the reality, calling things that are not as though they are. So this is not just nonsense. This is heresy. This is blasphemy. This is accrediting to man a creature what only God, the creator, can do and has the authority to do. It's a very dangerous lie, and it takes this text out of context. A text without a context is a pretext. Right. Speaking things into existence is solely the prerogative of God, and that's the whole point of the Genesis account. If you flip your Bible back to Genesis chapter 1, where we have this uh, the creation account, what, what's happening here? God speaks something into existence. Genesis 1-3, he speaks and light appears. Uh, verses 7 and 8, he speaks and the sky was formed. Uh, verse 9, dry land emerges. Verse 11, vegetation springs up. Verses 14 to 15, the sun, the moon, and the stars appear. Verses 20 and 21, fish and birds materialize. Uh, verse 24, animal life appears. Now, this shows the unique, unlimited power which is solely the creators, which God alone has. It cannot be duplicated. God's the only one who can speak things into existence. Isn't it interesting, too, that uh, if you're in Genesis, you can flip forward to the plagues of Egypt, um, chapter 8. Jump down to verse 19. So there are these plagues of Egypt. Moses is doing these plagues, and the, the Pharaoh's magicians, the Magi, are duplicating this. So Moses does a miracle. The Magi duplicate the miracle, and they say, well, that's nothing. I can do that. When we get to the third miracle, though, which is uh, God tells Moses to strike the dust, and gnats will appear. And the Magi can't do it. They can't make life out of this, the dirt. They can't create life. And what's their conclusion? This is the finger of God. Because only God has the ability to give life. Now the clear intent here is that God gives life to the deadness of Sarah's womb at 90 years old, to, to Abraham at, at 100 years old. Um, but I want to point out something really important here, and it's not that God is dependent on Abraham's belief in order for reality to take place. Let me explain that. Um, God's, God's not dependent on Abraham to believe him in order to do what he's going to do. At this point, God is just telling Abraham what's going to happen, whether he believes it or not. He's just telling Abraham what's, what's going to happen. Because God is not limited by whether we believe him. God does this um, because he chooses to. And Abraham believes God, and that doesn't give God permission or ability to do what God wants to do. But because Abraham believes God, God credits that belief as righteousness. If he didn't believe God, he wouldn't have that credited righteousness. But God acts independently of whether Abraham believes him or not. 
God fulfills this promise to Abraham, even though it seems, well, hugely unlikely, very strange, it seems incomprehensible. But the thing for us is that he's equally able and willing and competent to fulfill his promises to you. On the word of God, who was able to call things into existence, which did not exist, you know, we have also been promised things, remarkably big things. God has promised you eternal life through the substitutionary atonement of his son. God has promised that he will take away his wrath from you because he's been satisfied by Christ's payment in your behalf. God has promised that you are righteous, as righteous as his son, by his declaration. Now, these things are commonplace to us. We hear them every week at church. But these are huge things that we have been be declared righteous at God's word. Barnhouse wrote, if you're truly saved, it's because you have been saved exactly as Abraham was saved. You were dead in trespass and sins and by nature a child of wrath. The God of glory somehow appeared to you, most probably through some scripture passage in the Bible, and he gave you a revelation of the nature of his love. He showed you that you could never lift yourself by your own efforts, but that he would gladly count you as righteous even in the midst of your ungodly state if you would stop trusting in anything in yourself and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. All this was apart from joining anything, apart from anyone have to do anything to you, such as baptism, apart from anything in your character, apart from any rite or ceremony or liturgy or good work. It was the sovereign God reaching out to you in the heart of his love and in the wonder of his grace and bringing you to life and immortality through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we realize the simple wonder of this great fact, our heart bursts forth in praise unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and raised us to the rank of sons through faith in the Savior. We cry out, O blessedness that is mine, because the Lord has forgiven my iniquities and cleansed me from my sins. O blessedness that is mine, because the Lord does not credit my sin to my account, but the account of the Savior. All of this happened to me as it did to Abraham when I was yet ungodly. Verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed that he, should that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. He gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who delivered him up for our trespass and raised for our justification. Again, the emphasis of faith here means obtaining righteousness. It's an important term, but curiously, Paul never defines it. You know I mean? He just assumes that we, he knows 
what, that we know what he was talking about. Uh, you know, when we say we have faith in someone or we have faith in that person's word, we're saying that we have a confidence in that person, that, that uh, we believe him to be a person of character, that he will fulfill what he says he's going to do. Um, that's kind of what Paul is driving at here. In Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, which lays a great stress on the word faith, Hebrews 11 uh, defines that this way. It says, faith is the conviction of things not seen. Now, Abraham couldn't see the child that God had promised to him. In fact, when the promise was given, more than 10 years went by before the actual promise was fulfilled. Sarah was, was very old, Abraham was very old, and the baby doesn't come. And it seems more than unlikely because of their age, and it would seem more unlikely with each advancing year that the promise isn't fulfilled. It would be hard to keep believing, to keep trusting that God would do what he said he's going to do. But the, the key issue here is Abraham takes God at his word. He believes God to be truthful. He believes God can't break his word. Now, in the same way, we're asked to have that same kind of faith. I mean, here we are 2,000 years after the cross. We, we can't see Jesus being nailed to the cross. We can't see his blood flowing down. And had we been there, had you actually seen Christ being nailed to the cross, his blood flowing down and crying out at his finish, you still would not be able to see God laying your sin, your guilt upon him. You would not be able to see God transferring, crediting, reckoning his righteousness to you. Why do you believe that? Because you take it on faith, because you believe God is truthful, because you believe God who said that is true can't lie. That's the good news of salvation. It's not that faith somehow merits salvation, that, that, that God accepts uh, your, your, your faith as the merit, the good work that credits righteousness to you. Your faith is a good thing, but your faith wasn't nailed to the cross. Your faith didn't die for you. Your faith did not satisfy God's wrath against your sin. Jesus did that. Your faith is just simply believing God when he says he's satisfied that Jesus' death was sufficient. It was enough. That makes you righteous. We need to presume on the veracity of God, that God tells the truth, even if it's beyond my ability to believe. I still believe God speaks the truth. You've heard it said by me many times, you know, what is the chief end of man? It comes from the shorter Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But what does that actually mean anyway? How, do we, how is it that uh, we, we glorify God? You know, how do we bring God glory? Practically speaking, how does that work? I heard this illustration one time. I think John Piper started it. I don't know where it came from, really. It's not mine. But... Here's the picture. You're, you're a kid like three or four years old, and you're standing at the edge of the swimming pool, and your dad is out beyond arm's reach out in the middle of the swimming pool, and he says, jump, I'll catch you. 
Now, what does that young person do that honors, that, I'm trying to use, not use the word glorify, what, what does that person do that, makes her dad, his dad, look good at that moment. They, they jump, right? The dad's out there and says, I'll catch you, I promise. And if you want to make your dad look good, you jump. Now, suppose at that time you look at your dad out in the middle of the swimming pool and you think, he can't catch me or he won't catch me or it's not a good idea for me to do what he tells me to do. So instead of jumping, you run away from the pool. What does that declare to you about your dad? That he's not good, that he's not trustworthy, that he won't keep his promises, that I can't have faith in him. Now let me transfer that. How do we as Christians make our heavenly father look good? How do we bring glory to God? Now, again, he's made promises to us which are really hard to fathom. He's promised us eternal life. And he's promised us that he will declare us to be righteous, as righteous as Jesus. He promised that you can trust him. And what do we do at that point to make God look good? We believe him. We believe that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Faith makes God look good. Faith brings glory to God. And the harder it seems for God to fulfill his promises, the greater the glory that he receives when you believe him that he will fulfill his promises to you. Especially when all human resources have been exhausted, when all possibilities have faded away. That's where it really glorifies God. That's the point where Abraham is. All human possibilities are exhausted, but he yet, he believes God. He believes that God will do what he says he's going to do. Do you think that you can't trust God to deliver you? That you don't believe that God can come into your life and change your life and transform you and make your life different and clean you up? Do you believe that God will give you pardon and the assurance of that pardon? Then you need to remember when God makes a ridiculous, unlikely promise to Abraham, he fulfills his promise. A son was born. You can believe in him. If our view was as great as Abraham's, what a, an immense difference that would make in our life. In the movie, Leap of Faith, it shows these unscrupulous characters. Um, they're trying to perform these fake miracles, but they're also trying to explain the presence of true miracles, which they didn't expect and don't know how it actually works. In the process, the film actually rebukes those who are trying to manipulate God. And it shows that, that, that only Christ Jesus is ultimately the great 
physician. The, the bottom line for us is Abraham did not take a leap of faith. How then did Abraham come to believe such a massive thing that God asked him to believe? Simply this. He weighs the impossibility, humanly speaking, of those promises being fulfilled. Everything is against it. Time is against it. Nature is against it. Physical laws are against it. He weighs the human impossibility of those things happening against the divine impossibility that God wouldn't do as he said he would do. And he ultimately determines that God can be trusted, that nothing is impossible for God. Abraham glorifies God like, like, well, like no other human being has because he has a big God and he believes God is trustworthy. Some people have argued rather convincingly that verse 21 actually in our text here is probably the Bible's best description or explanation or de definition of what faith is because it describes Abraham, Abraham as being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. May we glorify God in that same way, taking him at his word. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. I'll ask the choir if you'll come forward the minute he'll be distributing these elements. One other thing, we're, we're kind of doing something different. We're still in transition from, from our COVID protocol. There are some of you who still would prefer not to have the common communion. Of course, that's what the word means, but... Um, if you still would prefer to have one of the Lord's Supperables, the little sealed cups and things, if you raise your hand, John will bring you one of those So if, if you want that. And then choir, when you're done, um, as you step off the stage on either side, there will be someone to hand you the elements. When you're done singing, if you just grab the elements as you step off the stage. Uh, let's prepare our hearts for communion. It's fitting, Father, that we should be talking about faith and what our faith is placed in because that's exactly what this communion is about. I couldn't say anything more fitting than that we would trust you based on your word, that you are satisfied with the sin offering that Jesus made in my behalf. I recognize that as I share with my brothers and sisters today in the cup of the Lord, his blood shed for me. I trust you, Father God, when you tell me that you see me now as righteous as Jesus, that his righteous life is credited to me. You don't have any anger towards my sin. There are no consequences lingering. You are satisfied. And now I can come into your presence, not just morally neutral because of the cross, but righteous and positive because of his life too. I ask you now to set aside these common elements, this bread and this wine for its uncommon, its holy, its sacred purpose. And in the same time, I ask that you would set aside these common lives and that we as your sons and your daughters might be a living testimony of our hope, of your greatness, of the big God that we love and serve. We ask this in the power and in the name and the authority of Jesus. Amen.